Hi, and welcome to this podcast from 1914-1918war.com. In this episode, I'm taking a break from the readings of Bruce Benn's father's Bullets and Billets, which I've been doing over the last few weeks, to do an overview of the Battle of Luce. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave us a nice review and subscribe so that you get future episodes. Now sit back and enjoy the podcast. The Battle of Luce, situated in northern France, took place against a backdrop where Germany was losing strength in the west as it moved divisions to the east to face Russia. Germany had moved to a defensive posture in the west and had repulsed French offensives during the spring of 1915. The German posture had changed from the beginning of the war, where they tried to knock France out first, to trying to defeat Russia and then switching their attentions back to the Allies in the west. The French commander-in-chief, Joffre, was struggling politically and needed a success to resolve these difficulties. Noting German successes in Galicia, which were achieved with huge quantities of men and material, Joffre decided that, if properly resourced, a breakthrough could be possible in the West. Following the first inter-allied conference held on the 7th of July at Chantilly, and attended by French, British, Belgian, Italian, Russian and Serbian army representatives, it was decided that the Allies would attempt to pressurise the Germans on all fronts at once by launching coordinated attacks. The British would have preferred the offensive to be scheduled later, giving them more time to build up men and munitions, but Joffre needed an early success, not only politically but also to liberate northern France, where much of French heavy industry was located. However, Despite British reticence, Joffre was able to get the support of Sir John French, the British commander-in-chief, who also wanted a major success on the Western Front. The French plan was to break into the great Western German salient, breaking in at Vimy Ridge and Champagne. Prior to the battle, the British army had taken over lengths of the front from the French in order to free up French troops, and now they were to support the Vimy effort, advancing across the heavy industrial landscape around Luce. However, the ground around Luce was not ideal for an attack, being flat and exposed with lots of covering industrial workings. The British pushed back on the location of the attack, citing the lack of munitions, but Joffre held firm. To counter the risks caused by lack of munitions and the unfavourable ground, Haig decided it was time for the British to use poison gas for the first time. The British would need every bit of help they could get. The German defensive system comprised of two lines, three miles wide, with well-sighted machine gun posts and lots and lots of defensive wire. Sir John French was cautious about the chances for success, but Haig grew increasingly confident as the attack drew nearer, even writing to his wife to say that he was pretty confident of some success, and as always with Haig, harbouring some hope that he would be able to get his operational reserve to advance into the open country behind the trenches. But Haig was to be proven wrong. The ground was flat, dominated by slag heaps that could be used to create defensive positions. A host of mining villages, 
collieries and industrial buildings that could be fortified presented even more challenges for the attackers. The Germans had strengthened their front line, deploying wide barbed wire belts many yards thick and creating machine gun redoubts all along. Behind the first line, a second line of defence had been strengthened. Crucially, the second line was out of reach for British artillery, so after any successful attack that penetrated the first line, guns would have to be brought up if they were to play a part in further attacks. Finally, the second line was situated on a reverse slope, so the British couldn't observe it from their start lines. On the 21st of September 1915, the British bombardment of the German front lines began. The artillery bombardment was scheduled to continue right up until the assault. With the extensive artillery preparations and the participation of six divisions, this was a very large offensive indeed for the British at this time and was widely referred to as the Big Push. Certainly it was the biggest British attack so far and the Germans, although they didn't necessarily know the exact date and time, they knew it was coming. At 5am on the 25th of September 1915, Sir Douglas Haig was testing the wind direction. The air was almost dead calm, so his aide-de-camp, Lieutenant Colonel Alan Fletcher, lit a cigarette. The smoke drifted off slowly to the northeast in roughly the right direction for the release of the gas. But Haig was concerned that the breeze wouldn't be enough, worried the gas would simply rest over the British trenches and over no man's land, through which his men would have to attack. At 5.15, Haig telephoned Sir Hubert Gough, who was the commander of the First Corps, who were attacking that day. Haig asked whether it would be possible to reduce the frontage of the attack, given the unfavourable breeze. But when Gough said it was too late to change the plans, Haig gave the order to carry on. By 5.40am, the breeze had increased slightly. Haig noticed that the leaves on the poplar trees were beginning to rustle and that this would be satisfactory. At 5.50am, the chlorine gas was released from canisters sighted along the British front line. A huge cloud of white and yellow gas rose up from the trenches to a height of 200 to 300 feet and floated towards the German lines. At 6.30am, the whistles blew and six British divisions climbed out of their trenches and made their way across no man's land. For five of those divisions, the gas worked and the men were able to capture much of the German front line and in places parts of the second line. However, for the second division's attack on the left of the line, the gas hung around in no man's land and in places blew back onto their own positions. Second Lieutenant George Grossmith described the gas. The gas hung in a thick pool over everything and it was impossible to see more than ten yards. In vain I looked for my landmarks in the German line to guide me to the right spot, but I could not see through the gas. Where gas did its job to the south of Haig's attack, 4th Corps made significant progress in that first day, capturing Luce and moving on towards Lenz. Whilst it was clear that the enemy lines had been pierced, there was uncertainty about the next layer of German defences, and few Royal Flying Corps reports were coming in due to adverse flying conditions. Luce had been captured, but the 47th and 15th Divisions who'd managed this feat had been halted and were threatened by counter-attack. Hearteningly, though, there were clear signs of Germans withdrawing in this area and panic in Lens. However, due to supply problems and the need for reserves to be brought up, the advance halted towards the end of the first day. 
Haig had requested that nine corps be available for use on the first day, always with an eye on exploiting a gap, but Sir John French had argued that they wouldn't be needed until the following morning. However, as it appeared that the breakthrough had occurred, nine corps were released during the afternoon, but travelling delays meant that they only arrived in position during the night. Meanwhile, to the north, 1st Corps made less progress as the British gas attack had been less effective. However, they were able to take some ground around the formidable Hohenzollern Redoubt. So, during that first day, the British had successfully broken into the enemy's trench systems. However, they were now meeting determined resistance along the second line and were unable to get reserves forward in order to exploit the opportunities they had created. Whilst the Germans were under pressure from the heavy French attack to the south, it didn't stop them from bringing in more reserves into the loose area. The weather was closing in and it was raining heavily. Haig, at First Army headquarters, had an unclear view of the whole situation and was unaware that the Germans had reinforced. The lack of reserves in position on the British side and the new German troops arriving meant that the British were vulnerable to counterattack. By day two of the battle, the Germans were secure in the second line of their defences and the British no longer had the advantage of artillery bombardments. As the British attempted to attack the reinforced positions, they were raked by German machine gun fire. In some places, the German machine guns had killed so many British soldiers that they ceased fire to allow the troops to withdraw. The battle descended into days of attack and counter-attack. One participant was to comment... What a show. Few instructions, little ammunition or bombs, next to no support from the artillery, no system for looking after the wounded and practically no food. No wonder we lost the ground we'd won and lost so many casualties. Running alongside the British attack at Luce, the French attacks at Champagne and Artois had also failed and Joff called a temporary halt. The Battle of Luce rumbled on with local actions before being formally reviewed on the 13th and 14th of October. However, this well-prepared attack also failed, foundering on the Hohenzollern Redoubt, which the Germans had completely recaptured. The battle achieved little. The British lost about 16,000 dead and around 25,000 wounded. German total losses, dead and wounded, were around 25,000. The British had also lost three major generals, proof that they weren't always hiding behind the lines. Rudyard Kipling, the famous writer and advocate for Britain and Empire, lost his son during this battle, and it turned his thoughts against the war. He was to write in his poem, The Children. That flesh we had nursed from the first in all cleanness was given, to corruption unveiled and assailed by the malice of heaven by the heart-shaking jests of decay where it lolled in the wires, to be blanched or gay-painted by fumes, to be cindered by fires, to be senselessly tossed and retossed in stale mutilation from crater to crater, for that we shall take expiation. But who shall return us our children? The body of his son, John Kipling, was never found. As a postscript to the battle... One tangible result of the Battle of Luce was that Douglas Haig replaced Sir John French as the British Commander-in-Chief on the Western Front. After the battle, Haig had written to Kitchener, the overall head of British Armed Forces, expressing his disappointment that the reserves had not been released in order to allow him to exploit the favourable position in which he found himself. During October, 
High-level discussions in government and in the British Armed Forces discussed whether Sir John French was actually up to the job. During these discussions, Haig was asked his opinion and he was clear that he would be able to do a better job. By the 3rd of December, Kitchener told Haig that he was going to talk to the Prime Minister about him succeeding Sir John French and on the 10th of December, Haig received a telegram telling him that Sir John French had resigned and that he was now Commander-in-Chief of the British Expeditionary Force pending the King's approval. Hope you've enjoyed this podcast from 1914-1918law.com. It's been an interesting one for me to give an overview of the Battle of Luce, as one of my ancestors died assaulting the Hohenzollern Redoubt. If you have found this podcast interesting, please hit the review button and say something nice so other people can find it. Uh, And make sure that you're subscribed so that you don't miss out on future episodes. And next episode we'll be back to our reading of Bruce Bansfeather's Bullets and Billets book. Thanks for listening.